This is the Lattice Training Podcast, where we bring you the best in climbing performance and training from the world's elite athletes, thought leaders, and coaches. In this podcast with Adam Fiala as my guest, it's going to be quite different from anything that you've heard from Lattice before. It's both a narrated and interviewed insight into the journey that one of our clients took with us to climb his first 8B plus or 514A in USA grades. And it's by far the most comprehensive look at training slash performance journey that I've seen written anywhere. I'm going to split the podcast into half narration. So you'll hear the words of the blog directly from me. So I'll be reading this and then half interview with Adam. At each stage of his journey, we're going to listen in his words read by me. And then I'm also going to chat with Adam about each part to tease out the information and context around his thoughts and experiences. Really, this is the interview and the one that you want to listen to if you want to know what it's like to train with Lattice and what the process looks like from start to finish. I will say before we kick off that because Adam has written such an in-depth piece of writing around his climbing, we're going to split the interview into two parts as there's so much to go through. And also, I'd like to give credit to David Goggins' The Audio Book, because the concept of narration plus interview comes from there originally. And I thought this was an absolutely brilliant format, and I got loads from it. So I kind of wanted to replicate this out. And lastly, I want me to point you in the direction of two variations of Adam's blog. There's a full unedited version on his own website, which we'll put links in the show notes and a condensed version in two parts in our own website on latticetraining.com. I really hope that you enjoy this, and I think there's a lot to be gained from understanding the experiences of others, so we're going to dive into that. As a way of giving you a bit of a contents list into what lies ahead, I'm going to read out the main summary topics that we're going to cover in this episode and in the next couple of hours of discussion. First off, is Adam's climbing and training history and what he experienced by being his own climbing coach. Next, his doubts about working with a coach. Then what he learned from performance profiling, followed by how Lattice took a different approach with his training. Next up, we have his fears over weight gains and a new nutritional approach. And then we move on to the nitty gritty of what he actually did in the program with us and the full details. Next, we have what happened when he went to try his project, and there are two different periods of doing that. And then finally, his thoughts around the hard truths about training and performance and the whole journey of that. Okay, let's dive into this. This is gonna be a little bit of a journey. So first off, I wanna say welcome to Adam to the show, and uh, I hope you're looking forward to going back over your blogs. Uh, yes. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. And this is really exciting. I'm happy that uh, people can uh, can hear the full blog here. Okay. So I'm going to go into reading of the first part of your blog now. Um, and then when we finish going through that, um, I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask you a load of questions about the first kind of stage um, of that blog. So I'm going to go into storytelling mode first off, and then we'll dive into some sort of interview Q&A. Yep, that sounds good. 
This is a story of a journey to climb my first 8B plus or 514A. Climbing 514 can be perceived as an elite climbing performance, but the fact is that this grade is being climbed way more often nowadays. This, however, is not the point. I chose to write a story for a different reason. I couldn't get to this grade just by climbing, and I had to learn a lot of new things and step out of my comfort zone. This might as well be the story of how I climbed my first 512 or 513, but it so happened that the process to climb 514 was the most challenging, but also the most memorable one. I always say that I started climbing at the age of 13 because that was when my first official bouldering gym in my hometown was built. I felt as though that was the first time I actually got interested in climbing and the first time I wanted to climb independently of my parents. I actually started climbing with my dad a long time before I turned 13, but was never more than dangling on a rope and top roping easy routes. At the age when Adam Andra started on-siting his first eight A's, I preferred to read and play computer games. After I discovered climbing for myself, it took me around three years to climb my first 7C and two more years to climb my first 8A at the age of 18. However, sport climbing was only part of my focus. Inspired by the first dosage movies, I was intrigued by bouldering, which felt like something new and cool and ideal for a climbing teenager. It might sound like climbing 8A at the age of 18 set me up for a great sport climbing career, but it was little more a little, or is a little more complicated than that. I was never really a very physically strong climber, but my fingers were decent and my height certainly helped me a great deal. On the other hand, my core strength and overall body tension were severely underdeveloped, which caused me to struggle on overhanging terrain. I learned how to use my strengths and that allowed me to have some early climbing successes. By the end of 2015, I'd climbed several routes in the 8A plus range and was ready to try the next level. I set my sights on an 8B enduro route called, and I'm going to probably hash this up, Look Knock at Arena in Misipec. Can you confirm that, Adam, just so I don't mess up this narration any further? It's actually Lachkonoc Irena at Misipec. Oh, God, that was absolutely terrible. I might just keep <laughs> asking you to pronounce these names as I go through them. Yeah, no problem. But ultimately, I felt like I'd bitten off more than I could chew. I tried every trick I could think of, refined all the beta, rested properly, and it still seemed like I wasn't physically able to do it. I didn't climb much in 2016. I was having lower back problems caused by my extremely weak core, and I needed to focus on fixing that. It was a hard year mentally but it proved to be a very important step in my development as a climber. In 2017, I finally sent my first 8B and thanks to physiotherapy broke through this plateau. In 2018 to 19, I was able to send a few more climbs at that grade. Throughout 2018 and 19, I focused more on sport climbing and sent a few more 8B pluses. I felt as though I broke my first significant plateau by strengthening my core. However, it soon became clear that there was another plateau that I found myself in. I did feel that my body was functioning better, but it seemed another level of climbing was still out of reach. In spite of this feeling, 
I try. I decided to try a route called Danetsvukmi. Dance with the Wolves, translated in English. And at the end of the 2019 season, at the time, it only seemed two ascents, both suggesting a grade of 8C. I quickly found myself doing all the moves on the route, realizing it's very much a question of endurance, or rather power endurance. It's quite short, around 15 meters, and consists of 23 moves. The route starts quite deep in a limestone cave and it's deceptively steep. I never measured it, but I think it might be something around 30 degrees, which gets steeper at the end. It felt intimidating to try my first 8C route, but I very soon realized that the consensus grade would settle lower than 8C. Next route, the next year proved me right. The route gained popularity and the suggested grade hovered around 8B plus or 8B plus slash 8C. This was great news for me. A solid 8B plus seemed like more seemed like more of an attainable goal. This route is one of the best climbs that I've tried, but its beauty doesn't lie in the aesthetics, height or exposure. It's the movement that really makes it so special. The main crux of the route, a cross through move about halfway up, really suited my strengths, and the rest positions that other climbers use didn't work for my height. As a result, my sequence ended up being really interesting series of moves that flowed naturally, just like a real dance, I guess. Of course, the best scenario is when a route has great aesthetics and great movement. But if I had to choose one, I'd always opt for great movement. That's where the fun comes from after where the fun comes from, after all. It was a perfect project for me to step up to the next level. I decided to craft a training plan focused on building the power endurance that was much needed for the route and that I was lacking greatly, but it was clear that I already had the prerequisite strength required for this route. I decided to use the book, The Rock Climber's Training Manual. The book talks about different aspects of training and performance in great detail and suggests a generic training plan for self-coach climbers. Plan is periodized and starts with low intensity volume endurance training, ARC in this case, followed by a strength phase and power endurance phase, and of course a peak phase after that. As mentioned above, the program is periodized, which means that each block focuses exclusively on one energy system. I decided to follow the plan, but I threw in two hangboard sessions a week. I found out some time ago that a hangboard is a crucial component for keeping my fingers resilient to injuries so I decided to keep doing that along with the suggested program. Using the suggestions outlined in the popular book The Rock Climbers Training Manual, I started with a low intensity endurance block that included a lot of arcing. It's basically a workout where you keep continually climbing on the wall, for example around 10 minutes, while staying in the aerobic zone. This means that you shouldn't get pumped and that by that you improve your capacity and ability to distribute oxygen into your forearm muscles. The first mistake that I made with this training program was getting the intensity wrong for the arc workout. This type of workout should be done at a low enough intensity that you can climb for 10 plus minutes without getting pumped. I was trying to do this at my local bouldering gym on a fairly steep section of wall, defeating the purpose of this exercise. Mistake number one, In hindsight, I can see that there were two reasons for this mistake. 
Firstly, I didn't understand the workout properly. I didn't have anyone to ask and wasn't paying enough attention to the details of the RCTM outlined. Secondly, I think there was also a fair bit of ego telling me that I, need, I, that I needed or I indeed can do the arcing on that wall. Well, I couldn't. When I look back at that time now, I realize how much training I was doing. I kept a training journal back then, which serves as a great testimony to how much I was overtraining. Back then, I thought that training, was, training hard meant doing two sessions a day, one in the morning and one at night. Now that I understand what my body can actually handle, I have to laugh. Why on earth did I try and do a bouldering session and an endurance session on the same day? I now know that three to four intense climbing sessions a week enough are enough for me. I knew very little about training, although I knew a lot. Here's an example of a week of my training from those days. Week one, Monday hangboard, Tuesday arcing four times 10 minutes. Wednesday, hangboard, dips, skin the cat. Thursday, rest. Friday, bouldering two hours, arcing two times 15 minutes. Saturday, rest. Sunday, bouldering in the morning, four times 13 minutes arcing in the afternoon. Another example from week two, Monday, hangboard, arcing four ses sets and side note, sideways notes or side notes that say really tired. Tuesday, leg day. Wednesday, took a rest, felt a bit sick. Thursday, yep, I'm definitely sick. And that concluded my training for the rest of the week. But the symptoms of overtraining were different. For example, I experienced significant mood swings. I never knew your body could react to overtraining this way, and it was not pretty. I felt irritated, tired, and anxious. To top it off, I developed some signs of impingement syndrome in my shoulder. That forced me to take a step back and focus on rehab. It really sucked at the time, but at least it helped me get out of the overtraining cycle. As you can see, this attempt to train was a complete disaster. I went super hard until I completely exhausted myself or got sick, and then I had to miss, miss training whilst I recovered. My motivation and drive to train hard was really high, but I channeled it in the worst way possible. It's quite interesting to read this back and realize how many mistakes I was making back then. But at the time, I didn't know training was supposed to be like that. I guess I thought that getting better needed to involve a lot of struggle. Now I understand that while effort and struggle are natural parts of training, they must be sustainable and focused. After this unsuccessful training experience, I decided to make one important change which ended up being the best thing that I did for my climbing in a long time. You can read about that in the next post. Okay, first up, apologies for the mispronunciation of at least two routes there, Adam. Thanks for saving me. Oh, that, that's, that's fine. Okay, I'm going to get straight into some training questions here. Because uh, I think this is the stuff that people are going to be really interested in. And thank you for all the insights into, you know, your, your preamble to coming and working with Lattice, because I think this is really valuable. And what I want to ask 
and talk about is arc training. Can you mm-hmm. give or share some of your experiences around this? Because your experience is very similar to what I've seen done elsewhere. Oh, that's, I'm glad to hear because uh, that means I'm not alone. Um, so I compare it with, I, I, I compare what I did back then with what I did after with my coach, uh, Raf, uh, that I trained uh, with uh, while I was uh, trained by Lattice, or I still am actually. Um, the problem back then was that uh, the arc training was too intense. Uh, I was doing it on a steep wall uh, and I think I was dipping into anaerobic zone uh, too much. And as a result, it was really exhausting and it was really hard to recover from. And as I learned later, uh, the intensity has to be really low, probably lower than you think uh, when you don't have the experience with the workout. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I asked my, my coach Raf from Lattice, uh, if he thinks that the intensity is right when I describe him uh, to him how I feel. And he said, well, you have to adjust the intensity and make it way lower. Uh, and, you know, you can maybe you just uh, put your f- uh, feet on the ground and just traverse on the steep terrain while having your feet actually on the ground and not on the footholds. And I was thinking to myself, are you serious? I can do that on the bouldering uh, gym in in public where people will see me. <laughs> um, and uh, but then I realized that's, that 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 is exactly what I have to do. That uh, I actually switched the to my home wall, even though it's pretty small. But the angle is much better for that. I just used the total jacks in almost vertical terrain, well, not quite, but almost. Uh, and, you know, it's boring. It's It kind of hurts your skin. It hurts your feet to be there for so long. Uh, but it actually works. Uh, you improve the uh, energy system you want. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it definitely improved my climbing. And just to give people context who are listening in terms of the sort of the grade and intensity we're talking about you know your when when you were doing that work at the time at that kind of 8a plus 8b red point level how hard were you trying to do that arc training and with with the knowledge you have now how much lower would you have pitched it like what sort of grades are we talking here it's hard to tell. The main thing for me is the is the steepness of the wall, uh, but I definitely I definitely made it around. I would say like a like a whole uh, number grade easier, like a you know four grades easier for sure. Uh, I don't know at what uh, grade am I arcing now but it's really low and it's probably lower than you would expect from a climber that climbs eight Bs. Yeah. I mean, m- me personally, if I do 
like if I'm climbing 8B, I will do my arc training on 6B. Yeah. Very unlikely that's any higher than that. That's that that sounds right actually. Yeah. I never thought about it in terms of grades, uh, but it has to be somewhere in that range. Mm. The other thing I often tell people is that when you look at arc training, it should be the kind of intensity where you could do it seven days a week and still feel absolutely fine. And people go, whoa, you can't climb seven days a week. And I go, exactly. That's how easy this thing has got to be. Yeah, I think the biggest problem for me, and I'm sure for many other people, is ego. Uh, I just, I just thought thought uh, that I'm for sure able to arc in a, on a steep terrain. It should be no problem for me. And the second thing is that people and me uh, as well, you know, we climbers are used to. Uh, to the feeling of exhaustion after training and we like that uh, we're tired and our muscles ache uh, and we like to do hard moves all the time uh, especially those in uh, in the background of bouldering so i i just had to totally switch my perception of what climbing training can be like to do this uh type of training properly and when you think back to the overtraining that you you did when you were writing your own you know training program and things like that do you see that now as being a mismatch between your motivation and your psych and you know, what your your brain wanted to do, what your mind wanted to do versus what your body actually had the capacity for at the time? Or do you see it as being something different? No, that's exactly it. And, uh, you know, paper can take a lot, uh, but your body can't. And when you're writing uh, a training plan, you don't want to write a plan when there are only like five sessions or three sessions. You want a training plan that looks exciting. And I actually think uh, there's another problem with that. Uh, the training program I wrote, I was actually uh, able to do, but only for a week, maybe. And, and then I would break. And uh, from my experience now, now, when uh, Raf writes a training plan, I, uh, my coach, I, I know that I have to do uh, the week and that I have to do uh, a second week and a third week. And there's a deal week after then, but then I have to do another month, you know. So, uh, so there were two things. Um, my, um, my psych and then uh the lack of uh, knowledge in terms of uh, long-term planning ah so you are very rarely giving yourself any form of you know deload or change in the weekly training load it was it was very flat all the way all the way through well i would typically only plan 
maybe a week or two weeks ahead. I had no notion of deload weeks. Uh, I just thought I will go, I will write my training plan and I will just do it every week. Um, and then I, you know, I realized, but I, I burnt out so quickly that I didn't even realize I, I needed a deload week. In other words, I didn't even finish uh, my, uh, my training plan that I wrote for myself. Uh, I usually would get injured or sick or just really uh, burnt out mentally. Uh, so uh, I think I could maybe at the time uh, I trained for two weeks consistently and then, you know, something came up uh, that was caused by overtraining some of the things I mentioned. Mm. I, so I think... pretty, pretty, pretty catastrophic, I would say, was this uh, attempt to uh, create my own training plan. It's very normal, though. Uh the you know the habits that you had and and how you did that process of working and planning on quite a short-term basis and one of the things that often it leads to is that people become really reactionary in terms of that feeling of cumulative tiredness and overtraining because they they train hard at 100 miles an hour until the point that they suddenly realize that for three, four, five days in a row, they felt truly awful. And then it's too late. And then they're trying to plan some kind of rest to recover mm. from the whole process because they never think ahead more than a couple of weeks. They, yeah. they go on, I don't know, the 15th of April and say, I feel great. So that means I'm going to do another two weeks of really hard training because I feel so good right now. But actually on the 15th of April, you might be on right on the margins of just enough and it's appropriate to have a little bit of a rest now and then one week another weekend they're further in the hole but they're still not feeling awful enough to stop and deload then they push it really far to the end of the month and then it's game over yeah yeah and uh, one more thing to say is that at that time it was my first attempt to uh, organize my training and uh, i got so excited about it that i wanted to make it a big thing and so I wanted to dedicate the time to the training when actually I would benefit from much lower load. And, but, you know, if I did that right from the start, it, it wouldn't feel like such a big, big thing because I wouldn't train that much. Uh, so, yeah, it was that uh, initial uh, ex bad experience that I had to lead through to um, make a change, I think. Mm. Well, let's um, let's go into part two and uh, continue with the story and uh, see what happened next, if you're ready. Yep. After my initial attempts to train in early 2020, everything felt a bit shitty. The world stopped suddenly because of the pandemic, and it was really weird and a confusing time. International borders were closed, and since my project was located in Slovakia, I wasn't really sure when I would be able to get back on it. I couldn't train either because of a shoulder injury. Both of these issues were convenient excuses to stop going after my goal. I pushed my project somewhere to the back of my mind. 
and stopped thinking about it. My reasons for this were understandable, but if I'm being honest, I think it was actually that I was just scared to fully commit to something outside of my comfort zone. Since traveling around Czech was not restricted, I figured the best way to spend my time would be to go bouldering in local areas. It worked out well because I could climb and still maintain social distance. Even though my goals had shifted, I actually had a really good time in the boulders. I rediscovered some local areas and sent some boulders around Font 7C to 8A. I have really nice memories of those spring trips with crisp conditions and trying hard on boulders. After a while, I started to think about my sport climbing project again and realized that nothing had progressed in terms of training for it. It's not that I hadn't enjoyed the climbing. Some people climb at similar levels for years, even for decades. There's so much value in just getting out and climbing with friends. And that's exactly what I enjoyed about bouldering. However, for a really long time, I felt like I needed something else too, something more. I wanted a breakthrough to another level. And to be honest, going around and bouldering wasn't going to help that. I was already quite decent at technique, climbing tactics, resting, beta refining, and the mental aspect of climbing. I was definitely nowhere near mastering all of the above mentioned, but I was refining these aspects for a really long time. What I needed was to work on the physical side of things. I needed a training intervention. One day I found myself browsing the Lattice website. Lattice is a UK based company offering remote coaching for climbing amongst other things. I was always tempted to hire a coach, but there are a few things holding me back. One, I was a bit embarrassed to hire a coach. I was worried about standing out from my climbing friends. Everyone was training by themselves, so why shouldn't I? Was I not smart enough to self-coach? Two, I think somewhere on social media or in his book, Dave McLeod said that he thought that remote coaching doesn't really work. Because I remember stuff like this, and I love Dave's work in climbing, this idea was always in the back of my head. I do think that this statement is true in some cases, but definitely not every time. Three, it's expensive. I don't like spending money recklessly. So convincing myself that paying for a coach was worthwhile was a real crux. When I started climbing, climbers would hitchhike to the crag, sleep in a cave, and were usually getting groceries in the dumpster by the supermarket. I think what eventually convinced me to contact Lattice was a strong feeling that I needed to make a change. So I eventually contacted the team and subscribed to a premium membership, despite all my doubts and my training journey began. I got really excited right after I committed to hiring a coach. I suddenly felt less pressure on myself because I essentially handed Lattice the keys and let them take care of my training. The intake process was pretty smooth and I got assigned to coach RAF. The first step was to complete an assessment. I got instructions to perform a series of tests over two days with a rest day in between. Basically, they test pretty much everything related to physical training performance and climbing performance. We tested the following attributes. 
finger strength test on a standardized rung, endurance repeater test on a fingerboard, max pull-ups, max push-ups, core strength, flexibility, and many more. I submitted my, de- my results and waited for their analysis. There's an interesting point to be made about my results and my climbing ability at the time. Maximum weight added on a two se- two-handed seven-second hang on a 20 mil edge was 148% of body weight, which is 39 kilograms. Maximum number of pull-ups, 10. Maximum number of push-ups, 11. Maximum weight added for a two-rep pull-up on a regular bar, 137% of body weight, which was 30 kilograms added. My hollow body hold was 35 seconds. The cool thing about these tests is that you can compare your results to a database of other climbers and see how you stack up against others who climb at your goal grade. The results were also a factor in things like gender or also factored in things like gender and height. If you want to find out more, the owners, Tom and Ollie, do a great job of explaining their testing method on the Training Beta podcast here, link included. But I got my results and I thought I knew exactly what to expect. I assume my finger strength was decent, but nowhere near anything special. My general conditioning results, such as push-ups and pull-ups, I knew that my results might be good when compared to the general public, but for someone specialising in climbing and wanting to break into the 514, it's a little bit low. The assessment report was detailed and summarised my strengths and weaknesses, and the team did a great job of politely telling me that my results were significantly worse than they would expect from a climber of my current grade. In short, my body strength was deficient and my endurance was terrible. My finger strength was at least approaching what would be expected considering the the grade I climbed and my flexibility was okay, aka not catastrophic. I didn't score higher than what was expected for my grade on any of the tests. I thought that was very accurate and confirmed what I already thought. The results of my physical tests were really poor, but that said something about my climbing. For most of my life, I wasn't really training effectively, even when I thought I was. Most of my hard sends were done thanks to technique, tactics, beta, and sometimes my height. And that's what makes climbing so special. There are many facets of climbing performance And this complexity makes it really confusing to figure out what it actually needs to train. At the same time, it also offers so much space for improvement. In a way, I was proud to only be able to do 10 pull-ups and climb 8B at the same time. I did, however, now know exactly what I needed to do to continue improving. It's incredibly important, but knowing how to climb only gets you so far even though that might be pretty far. It happened to me multiple times that I had the route wired really well. I was rested and ready to try hard. I climbed without mistakes, but I still didn't do the route after tens of tries. There was this giant gap in my performance profile, and I knew I had to remedy that with some proper training. Soon after receiving my assessment results, I received a training plan in my inbox, And all I had to do was start training.
Okay. Next round of questions, Adam. There's definitely a bit of embarrassment and pride over hiring a climbing coach, isn't there? It's, it's a thing. It's a, th I don't know if it's a thing in Czech Republic or it's a, if it's a thing in a climbing community in general, but yeah, it's a thing. It's, and it's a thing because it's not common to have a climbing coach. And uh, it's a thing because of the background of climbing that uh, came up uh, from very interesting uh, culture of dirt bags, uh, people living in caves, uh, you know, uh, living on dole in Great Britain, as Jerry Moffat uh, said in his book. Uh, and because it's so new uh, uh, and it's not common, uh, it's it's a bit weird. Mm. And just to kind of be clear, am I right in saying that you were or are the only person out of your, you know, friendship group and climbing partners, etc., that have climbing a, hired a climbing coach? Or is it just rare or are you the exception? I think I'm exception. I don't know about anyone else actually from Czech Republic who is coached uh, by uh, remotely by someone like Latis. Of course, there are professional climbers that are coached, but uh, from a uh, uh, climb, general climbing public, quote-unquote, that uh, are not uh, climbing in competitions. I don't know about anyone. Yeah. I always think it's weird that people, and, and I'm not going to say that I'm not in this same camp because I've struggled with having someone coach me at certain points over the years. But I do think it's weird that we find this hard to have a coach considering when you look at most of the best international competition athletes nowadays who for the most part are like the best climbers both indoors and outside nowadays they all have climbing coaches so why wouldn't all of us in the general public do very well with that same well, resource i agree but it, it's a bit different right you can you can say it's their job so it's normal but for for us uh or at least for me uh who just do climbing for fun, it, it's a bit different. And I think uh, you really have to uh, have a conversation with yourself and admit that climbing is a, is a big thing for you. And it's important because, you know, you, you can say, oh, it's, it's not that important. Uh, I don't want to spend money and hire a coach. But at the same time, if you are uh, like me, you are going on all these climbing trips, all your holidays are climbing trips. You're spending all the time you know, in a climbing gym. You, you talk about climbing all the time with your friends. So, you know, aren't you lying to yourself a little bit when you're saying the climbing is not that important? 
And of course, I'm talking about people that are really, really psyched uh, for climbing, as I'm sure the listeners of these podcasts are. Uh, so it was a little bit of a process to say, okay, uh, I want to get better. It's important. And I think hiring a coach is a logical next step. And that's what I have to do, even though no one else does it around here. But, uh, you know, sometimes you have to be a little different to, to, uh, achieve some things, I guess. What, what did your friends say at the time? Were they all asking you questions going, what's it like? Is it any good? Is it a waste of time? Uh, you know, I think most of the quote unquote embarrassment and doubts were just in my head because my friends were actually psyched for me and they wanted to, they wanted me to show the, the training sheets I got from Lattes and they were asking all these questions. One of my friends even uh, subscribed to Lattes training plan, I think. Uh, so, yeah, they were actually psyched for me in the end. <laughs> and what do you think is, you know, for, for anyone who hasn't had a coach before, um, and I, I, I'm interested to hear your, your view on this because I think mine is almost worthless nowadays because I've just been in the coaching industry for too many years. It seems too normal to me, but what do you think are the main things or the main value to be gained by having another person work alongside you who has your interests at heart? Like what, what do you actually get out of that coaching thing? You know, aside from the training plan, et cetera. Okay, so aside from training plan, so all the knowledge that I didn't have, um, it was basically uh, my coach made me work on my weaknesses. And it's such a cliche when you uh, say, you know, you have to work on your weaknesses. But, uh, and some people, some people do it by themselves. And that's amazing, but I'm not that person. When I'm not good at something, I don't want to do it, you know. Uh, I describe all the things that were hard to me in my training plan. And I think I stuck with them just because I had them in my training plan. And uh, because I had the training plan and I invested some money in it, then I wanted to follow it because I didn't want all that effort and money going to waste. And uh, so uh, that that's one that's one thing. I was you know I was joking with Ralph saying that that's that's what they do for uh, their clients is they they call them on their BS because they they make them work on their weaknesses. Um, and another thing was the support and uh, the the. The endless support that Rob gave me, and he was always psyched for me, and he always trusted that I can achieve my goals. And also, it was just, uh, it was real, or it is uh, fun to talk about your project with someone else and discuss it. You know, we have, we have Zoom calls, and we actually look at my project, and he's asking me about the sections, and I'm describing. Uh, 
it to him. It, it's fun to have someone else involved in your climbing like this on on on, on this level, you know. Yeah, I, I think um, probably I'm not going to speak for all all people out there, but often our our partners, wives, girlfriends may not be quite as a hundred percent psyched on seven days a week chat about the project, whereas your climbing coach can take it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree, hundred <laughs> percent. Um. Talking about the assessment that you did with us, and and lots of people listening will know that we're we're really into this whole, you know, performance profiling aspect because it's just such a good starting point for working with training with anyone. Did you did you have a view of, or rather, how did you get a view of your own climbing strengths and weaknesses before? you did that performance profiling was it on the basis of what your friends said to you and feedback from there or was it educated guesswork or like how did you actually formulate those opinions about your own climbing Mm -hmm. well some things were easy like i knew that i just can do this number of pull-ups prior to the assessment uh and i had the idea that doing 10 pull-ups maximum is not great if i want to climb a big block uh other things i uh i i don't remember actually but i think uh that my endurance i just knew is not great actually the the low level endurance like aerobic endurance just because uh, I I used to in the beginning of my climbing I bouldered more uh, than I sport climbed and I always neglected that so I think it was just 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 my general feeling that I had about my climbing and one of the things that I noticed when when I was reading your blog was that I think you have a very good perspective or relationship to what quite often people would class as maybe negative feedback so things that you know came back in the report and highlighted that you were considerably weaker or scoring more poorly than we might expect for your grade or your goals but you seem to take that and frame that up as actually being a very powerful and opportunistic and good thing which i think is great this is a really good attitude and it's how i encourage most people to to take that on board like if someone comes back and says your upper body strength and conditioning is poor relative to where you are this isn't a diss and saying you're rubbish it's saying here's an opportunity here you've done well with what you have now let's move forward so how do you get yourself into that space where you see that in such a positive light? Well, uh, the reason is at the time I felt as though I have some uh, some other uh, qualities as a climber, which I meant, which uh, I mentioned in the blog, like technique, and uh, I had a, I, a good head, I think, good mental game and good tactics and everything. 
So I, I, I had a feeling that I achieved uh, a lot in climbing with these things. And the assessment only confirmed that in a way. Um, I wasn't proud about it, but uh, I thought it's a good starting point for my training. Uh, and uh, I, I guess, yeah, I guess that's it. That's that's how I approached it at the time. Mm. Try try to yeah try to take it positively. I think an interesting point on this is, and it's something that I've noticed a lot over the years of working with different clients and athletes, is that there's a a commonality or similarity between the attitude that someone has around being given feedback, which you could class as being negative or be saying that, you, you know, you're not where we would want you to be um, or you haven't done so well today and, and dealing with that well to also being the type of climber that when they have a poor training session or a poor training week or a session on their project where things don't go very well, both that that type of climber reacts well in both those situations they basically have the mental skills to deal with those situations in a good way and those that have the opposite reaction so they don't deal with the performance profiling report very well and they see it as being an attack and something which isn't positive or opportunistic and then likewise that a poor session on their project is a bad thing really struggle with their their climbing long term uh, and i think it's something which all people should if they really want to go far with their sport and get the most out of it as possible and also be happy and content with that process want to really tackle that and, and take that on board yeah definitely and in this case i i saw my my assessment report i saw all my weaknesses as a as an opportunity you know to to improve uh I didn't know if, if I can at that time, but uh, it, it, you know, it proved uh, that I could. So it actually worked well in the end. Mm. Okay, let's go and um, get back into the story and uh, talk about the the training plan and uh, working with Raf. If you're ready, yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. After I got assessed and received my assessment report, it didn't take long for my coach Raf to build a training plan. It came in the form of a color-coded table that referred to all the training sessions. I also received a session or sheet for each session with the description and all of the details. Here's a picture of the plan, and you'll see this if you go and look at Adam's blog. I must say that the engineer in me got really excited looking at this table so well organized and color coded. It took a while to figure out all of the workouts. And the key thing at the beginning of the training block was communication with my coach. I must give credit to Raf for answering many of my questions. When I read our email communication, it seems that there wasn't a question I did not ask. Can I reduce intensity by 5% for my fingerboard session? Is it okay if I swap this aerobic session for a slightly different one? Can I stretch between hangs? It seemed that Raf's patience was endless. In hindsight, I regret that I didn't take advantage of that 
to ask about the future of the world economy or what the weather will be like at the weekend. I'm sure that he would answer that as well. Maybe I'll do that next time. How did the actual training feel, though? The ability to handle workload comes back to the training history of the individual for me. Let's say I was very uh, unaccustomed to regular training. Every workout was destroying me, especially basic things like core, pull-ups, rings and push-ups. I even found stretching sessions tiring. And an anaerobic climbing session, I felt totally wrecked after that. I completed the first three months of training and I learned my first major lesson. Establishing how much workload I can handle consistently. That means the quantity of all the workouts that I complete in a week, considering I will do that for a few weeks in a row. I train for three weeks and the fourth week was a deload week, by the way. Of course, this approach was dramatically different to how I had planned my training in the past. I just squeezed in as many training sessions in my week without thinking about what came after that. And usually I was getting sick or burnt out, as you can read in the first part of my blog. So how did we figure out the final form of my training week? The process was really simple and really humbling. My coach just took away one workout after another until I was able to cross out all the exercises in each week whilst being able to continue with another week of training. One bigger disadvantage of this approach, my ego took a big hit and I couldn't tell people that I was doing double days anymore. For the advantages, I found out that I could be a better climber. It seemed that this revelation was more enough, more than enough to propel my training forward. However, I made another one and it involved nutrition. The climbing community that I grew up in always put a big emphasis on being light. The typical climber I knew was skinny. You almost never saw him or her eating anything other than nuts, the occasional muesli bar and a bowl of pasta in the evening. I adopted this attitude and I always kept sense of my weight. My friends would say that I eat very little, which I thought was completely normal and in fact healthy. To clarify, on average, my typical consumption would be a few hundred calories above my basal, my basal metabolism. I countered that later when I got interested in this stuff. This was fine on days when I had a low energy output. When I sat in the office for the whole day and I didn't do much afterwards. The trouble was when I trained and climbed the whole day or was active in some other way. After days like this, I would typically spend the day in bed or at work where I pretended that I didn't feel like a zombie. This is obviously a contributing factor in my overall training overtraining period that I described in part one, and it undoubtedly influenced many other areas in my life as well. But I didn't know it back then, and I still didn't know it when I started training with Lattice. The problem was that after a big day of training, I was unable to train the next day. I felt tired, irritated, and mentally exhausted. Even the idea of training was repulsive, and my mood usually got significantly worse on those days. Sometimes I got a headache too. 
I remember once I went to the gym for a prescribed climbing workout and I left after five minutes. I couldn't make a body move, even though or I couldn't make my body move, even though my muscles were not that sore. What finally helped me find the root of the problem was just a coincidence. After a full day of training, I was cooking and contemplating what lay ahead of me. I knew the next day of training was supposed to be mentally or supposed to be pretty hard. I was eating my dinner, thinking that once again, I would probably bail on my training tomorrow because once again, I felt tired, irritated and generally down. As these thoughts passed through my mind, I not only ate my dinner, but I also ate my lunch for the next day, a bowl of full a bowl full of sweet potato fries. It's funny to remember these little details, that that bowl of sweet potato fries was truly life-changing. Next day, I woke up and my muscles were sore and I was tired, but I was able to push through and complete the workout. I even enjoyed it by the end. I knew right then that this is it. This is what it's supposed to be like. It should be hard, but it shouldn't be impossible. I felt like I was finally able to pinpoint this thing that was making me tired, irritated, or even slightly depressed, all on a random basis. I consulted a nutritionist and I got scanned for my body composition. The in-body machine measurement came back with a value of 4.5% of body fat, which was really surprising for me. I always thought that the main sign of low body fat was toned abs, which are not in my case. I guess you can't consult Google for everything. The nutritionist pointed out to me that my body fat is very low and my basal metabolism is quite high, around 2,100 calories, which confirmed my own conclusion I needed to fuel more. And that's what I started doing. The effect of my training was huge. I was giving my body what it needed and it rewarded me back with increased tolerance to training. Not to mention that I was generally a much happier human. Isn't it funny that sometimes you try to improve at climbing and you end up improving in your life in general? However, the real crux was yet to come. As I started properly fueling my body and increasing the volume of training, I also started gaining weight, partly muscle and partly fat as well. Climbing is a strength to weight ratio sport. You can either improve by losing weight or gaining strength and other aspects of performance. But then I only knew one half of the equation, which was the weight part. I have personally experienced the amazing feeling of being lighter and feeling great on a climb where I'd struggled a few months ago. I also heard success stories of people losing weight and sending their projects. You need to be light to send hard routes, Stevie Haston says. Weight is such a common topic amongst climbers, and the reason really is simple. Weight is perceived as a one-dimensional metric, and it seems to correlate with performance in a linear relationship. You get lighter, you climb better. All you need to do is to focus on a number displayed on your scale. You just eat less and hope for that number to go down. Is it hard? Yes. Is it complicated? Not so much. The other option is to improve the other side of the equation, which means improving your shape, your strength, 
your endurance and other aspects of performance. You need to train effectively, consistently, and be smart about it. This is both hard and complicated, but the advantage of this approach is sustainability. In theory, you can improve in small increments for a very long time until you reach your genetic potential. However, you can only achieve so much with weight loss, and at some point, you just can't get any lighter. Of course, I knew all that. I'd read the theory many times the same way that you read this post. But I felt about the same way that I feel about communism. It makes sense and it sounds right, but everyone knows that it doesn't work. I confessed to Raf about my doubts. He was convinced that I'd be able to compensate for the additional weight with increased physical ability. I also asked about this issue on the Lattice 365, a discussion forum that's available to the members of Lattice. And here's what my coach Maddie told me. I think climbers often underestimate the impact that calorie restriction can have on mental health, motivation, concentration, general well-being, as well as injury risk. Pete Whitaker did a really good vlog on this, which is a blog on Facebook, about a trip that he did to Norway after trying to diet down really light. Basically, he was miserable, but luckily maintained his friendship with the understanding of Tom Randall. Based on this, I would say not to compare yourself to the fall autumn 2019 you, especially as your body composition shows you have very low body fat. Given this, if you did diet, you'd likely lose muscle mass, which, as you've said, is in a desirable distribution already. Muscle mass is obviously good for strength and power, but it's also good for our health and metabolism. Personally, I've gained around four to five kilograms since I started training and reduced my body fat. I was around 56 kilograms when I climbed 8A to 8B and around 60 kilograms when I climbed 8C. And I feel much stronger in my body for it. However, weight gained, even in a desirable way through muscle development in the upper body, can impact your finger strength and skin. So then the question is, has your finger strength also improved? And does your project really have short, sharp holds that may cause issues? The latter is quite a niche question, but maybe one where dropping a little weight and note up to perhaps two kilograms is recommended to prevent disruption to hormones such as, such as testosterone could be beneficial for a peak. When it comes to the notorious dieters in climbing history, like with many things, I think these stories are often rose-tinted. What we never hear about is the burnout, injury, impact on well-being, and how well they age. The impact of fertility, bone health, particularly for female climbers, but also for men. Nor do we ever know how well they would have climbed if they had fueled themselves better, or how much kinder they might have been to their bee layers. This little insight into someone else's experience, i.e. from Maddie, was crucial. It helped me realize that it's not just a theory that it can actually work. My doubts about the training program were eased and I stopped being so anxious about the fact that I'm gaining weight. Right at the end of my three-month block, I was able to go to Slovakia to go and try the route. 
I was still in the training phase, so I didn't expect much. When I got there, though, it's fair to say that I got my ass kicked. Technically, I did some good links, climbing the first and second half separately in one hang. In reality, it felt desperate. The holds felt super sharp. My skin hurt. It was hot and I felt really heavy in all the moves. To be fair, I wasn't supposed to be at my peak yet, so an average performance was expected on the route. Thanks to the lockdown that came in the fall, this was the last time that I climbed on my project in 2020. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to test my training after a proper rest and in my peak shape. Additionally, despite the fact that I was in good shape, I didn't feel I climbed my project, even if I had a chance to try it. After a small break, I resumed my training in November, and that started my longest and most sustained period of training ever. This was going to be a truly memorable winter for me, because for the first time in my life, I experienced the magic of hard training. Wow, that was quite a journey that you went through. And that stage of your training, huh? Yeah, it was kind of uh, two revelations uh, in, in at one time, you know, Start, starting training and changing uh, nutrition. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think like the, the first bit of that, that blog there about, you know, working with Raf initially and kind of going through your questions about your training and sessions and stuff about your project and that I always feel like I can never explain or articulate that well to the general public how much of a useful resource it is actually having a proper one-to-one coach who's on hand to you you can just ask them questions about kind of like anything really it's actually really cool yeah yeah it's great and uh, um you know, in the beginning, uh, some of the questions I think are a little weird uh, because the, the, the things you ask about are not so important. They're just little details and you actually, you need to assess how much you can train and some more important things. But I think everyone has to go through it to, to kind of learn and realize what is important and after some, some time, you can uh, make the uh, adjustments in the training by yourself because you already asked many times uh, the questions to your coach and you know what he will answer. So if it's details, maybe uh, you know the communication is a bit less frequent and it's more about really important stuff. But this initial phase, I think, is, is necessary for everyone. Mm. and when you went through and you kind of got through those initial stages of RAF and started to talk about the weight and diet thing I think this was amazing to actually read in a blog and to see your really honest thoughts about this because even if lots of climbers don't always express this stuff like to their coach or to their friends i think a lot of people deep down are thinking this kind of train of thought whether it's 
you know, really acute or it's just a mild thought process like that. So it was a, it was great to see that you kind of went through a bit of a, a journey, a process with that and came out on, on a good side with it. Yeah, it, 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 nutrition, it's such a huge topic in climbing, right? And, you know, the world I was living in up until then, uh, the world of climbers and nutrition that I thought uh, was right. You know, if, if five years ago, someone told me that he started training for, uh, for uh, next grade, for 8B+, and he gained five kilos in the process, I would tell him he's crazy. He, he has to, you know, diet and, and, and lose the additional weight. And I was, I was talking about it with my friends and frankly, they, I, their reaction was that I, in the end, eventually I probably have to lose the additional weight. And go back to my original weight but i wasn't fully convinced about it but it was really hard mentally for me knowing that the number on the scale is higher uh, and even though i could uh, I, I knew all the theory as i say in the blog the really what, what really changed the game for me was that uh maddie coke uh shared her own experience and she said i was 56 kilos and i climbed a b and then in the process of training for the next level grade i gained four kilos or whatever she said and suddenly i could relate to that it was real experience of a real person uh so that really helped me you know get through the long winter of training because you know when you train you don't really know if, if you improve or not uh so much so you really need to uh you you can't think of other things that distract you from the training so this was actually amazing to have someone else that climbs around the same grade or, or harder uh to go through the same thing and to hear their personal experience. And that's what I wanted to, uh, to get to other people, to other climbers and say that, you know, gaining weights sometimes uh, is not bad. It might be bad, uh, but uh, before you make the decision to diet and uh, improve by dieting make sure you your decision is well informed uh, and and make sure you actually have uh some fat to lose you know and make sure you don't harm your body and uh frankly i don't think i, I think it's a bit of a problem in climbing community and i don't think it's it's talked about enough and uh there's an extra layer to this because I am a bigger climber. I'm over 80 kilos uh, and I'm quite tall. And uh, it, it's, you know, average uh, height of climbers and average weight is a bit lower than mine. 
So it's even harder to uh, bump into someone that is 85 kilos and climbs 80 plus, even though people like that exist for sure. Um, so yeah, uh, pretty uh, interesting process this was. Mm. I think uh, the, the statement that you used there about when is that when climbers want to look at, you know, reducing reducing weight or or potentially increasing weight from where they are and they're taking on nutritional strategies that are differing from their current approach is is that key thing of do it in a well-informed manner because ultimately a move up or down is going to have ramifications and you want to you want to you want to think about them carefully because they will have an impact and some of those impacts may be positive and to the gain of your performance and others may not be. So it's something that is, is worth a good look at and shouldn't be taken lightly. And I think there's too many climbers who are basically just guessworking this stuff and not talking about it with others and aren't seeking the guidance of someone who really knows what they're doing in this arena and leading themselves down a, a tricky pathway, which doesn't in the long run uh, sort of end with, end up with them in a really good position with this. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I know so many climbers uh, that have their personal scale at home and they step on it every day or every week. And that's how they judge what shape are they in. Um, it, it sounds ridiculous but it's true and i was like that as well um fat loss or, or weight loss has its place but it has to be done carefully uh and uh, you know i'm not a nutritionist but uh, if i was to give one advice just look into it and uh don't try to lose weight in a, a training stage uh, of your season. And definitely don't try to stay light a uh, whole year round. Mm. Yeah. Lo losing weight in a heavy training phase is high risk. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, I, I have some, I've have seen some people pull it off and manage okay with it but it's, it is really high risk and it's rarely uh, a, a good thing to be doing. Um, so again, I think that's an important point. And one way that I sometimes try and frame this for people is that if you were to look at athletes in the age category of, you know, 16 to 22 years old, and you were to measure their weight all the way through those years, is pretty much every single hard training athlete in that weight category in any sport will be gaining weight all the way through that period of their life. And guess what? They will also be performing better and better every single year. So we, we don't, as a population, have an in, a problem here. We don't look at a, a guy who's you know gone from 16 years old 
to 20 years old and has become bigger and more muscular and stronger and go, that's a problem. This is not going to work out very well for his climbing. We generally look at that age category and go, this is great, proper athlete here. Someone's training appropriately, fueling properly, and they're going to be much, much better. But we look at a 30-year-old and go, ah, this, this could be problematic. And that's, that's a cultural issue. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Uh, I think, you know, the climbers in 80s or 90s, they were famous for uh, not eating anything and basically resting a lot and uh, trying to send hard stuff. But who knows what they could have done if they, you know, done properly. Not to take away from uh, uh, anything they've done, but uh, we, I think we need to fix that in climbing in general uh and um you know for people who are interested in numbers i actually uh, go to uh, in-body scans quite regularly and throughout the process of uh training with lattice and uh, trying my project i documented my weights and uh, uh, my fat percentage and muscle percentage so people can see in the blog how that evolved and uh, that I actually ended up being or having a little more fat than those uh, 4, 5, 5, 4.5% mentioned and uh, I think that's also uh, been beneficial for me to have a little bit more body fat because I uh, just feel better Overall, you know, you no, know, we, we're talking about uh, climate performance, but this whole nutrition thing, when I started to feel better and eat more, the, the main uh, thing that I got from that was that my uh, general life quality improved. I was just, I, I, just, I just felt better, you know. So I, I think that's important. That's more important than climbing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and question I want to ask you about the, the end of that last blog post was that you, you went to try your project when you were still kind of in the in early initial stages of mm -hmm. your training. And I think this is, another thing which is important to talk about because i've i've had this a lot with people that i've trained over the years is that they complete 8 12 16 weeks of training with me and they are hoping especially if they're still in sort of like a base phase of training they're thinking oh wow i've done loads of hard work already i'm going to i've got to be stronger i've got to be doing better on my project but Training needs time and you, you kind of can't like can't expect too much too fast. So yeah, what's your sort of thoughts on that those early attempts now looking back on things and well at so at that time I think I uh, enrolled with Lattice in June and I, I trained for about two months or three months with Ralph. And then I went back to my project. And uh, honestly, even back then, I didn't expect much because a lot of those first uh, two months or three months were 
kind of like a hidden miss in, in terms of uh, the training load that we were adjusting constantly, aka reducing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I, I still, at, at the beginning, I still struggled with fueling. And so I, I missed some uh, sessions as well. So I knew that it's it's not it wasn't ideal. Uh, so yeah, I didn't make a big deal out of it. And I was actually looking forward for uh, oh, oh and sorry, and at the same time, uh, I only went there once. and then I uh, the, then we planned a um, big phase for September and October. Uh, but then the the borders closed because of COVID, so I couldn't go there. Uh, so when I visited my project once, I was still in the training phase, still very tired. So yeah, there were no expectations. Then uh, the borders closed, and I started training uh, in already in November, and uh, the next thing. That winter, I think I trained for like five months straight. Yeah, but that's the next episode. <laughs> oh, we'll uh, we'll have to we'll have to wait for that um, that next section because that's kind of in part two of this podcast. Um, so that uh, yeah, we have time to narrate and discuss all those things and. Both you and I don't uh, run out of uh, talking juice. Um, and so, yeah, anyone listening, we will be doing that in a part two of this episode. Um, we will be putting in the show notes um, all of the links to Adam's original blog. So if you want to go and read that, uh, definitely do. I think one thing that's really cool is that Adam's put quite a bit of uh, illustration and uh, graphs and details of everything to do with his training. Some super interesting stuff like tracking body weight um, and his performance and everything like that all the way through his training. So it's definitely a very detailed insight into that whole training journey. Um, yeah, that- there are memes too. Say again? Oh, there are memes as well. So you should go there and read it. <laughs> Always got to go there for the memes. Yeah. And uh, is there any uh, last thoughts that you want to leave anyone with um, from your your first sort of half of your journey with training uh, before we, we sign off? Uh, yeah, maybe just just one thing. You know, one of one of one of the one of the things uh, or some bias that I had about uh, hiring a coach or some something that was preventing me from hiring uh, a coach was that I thought that I can figure it out myself. Uh, you know, because there is a discre- discrepancy, I think, between climbing well and actually understanding training, meaning that you can really know how to climb but you might not know a lot about training. Uh, and, you know, as an engineer, I thought I, I, I'm for sure smart enough to build a, a training plan. But 
it actually wasn't the case. Uh, and the problem was my lack of knowledge, of basic principles, you know, and also how to how to do uh, uh, sessions. Like we discussed, you know, my arcing session. And, you know, I was planning just a week ahead and there was no long-term conception. Uh, so, um, you know, it's, it's good to double check on those assumptions and just, just try it, you know. Uh, by the way, Lattice doesn't pay me for saying that. <laughs> this is my own recommendation. Uh, and I would encourage, uh, you know, everyone to, to just, just go and try to hire a coach. Um, and another thing uh, I mentioned was money. Uh, you know, I was hesitant about the money because uh, 100 euros for a uh, for premium uh, training plan is not a lot, but it's also something at the same time. And, uh, you know, people mention it's an investment into climbing. And it's definitely true, but there's, I think there's one more thing. It's not only investment into you climbing harder and better, but also it's, uh, it's investment into your education in building training plans and in learning about training principles, you know. Uh, and uh, in those six months or more you spend with your coach, you actually learn so much. Uh, and you understand how training works a little bit, you know, and then you can continue. Or I think you can also uh, just uh, go and build a training plan by yourself because it's it's actually a really long uh, workshop in uh, building a training plan that you test on yourself. Uh, so 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 that's a that's a little thought. Uh, I had in terms of uh, my reluctance uh, about investing money into training as a coach. Yeah, I, I fully agree with this whole thing about if you work with a coach, and especially if you work with a coach who helps you with your training programming, a successful, good quality coach should leave you with enough education and knowledge and expert, uh, expertise that after maybe I'd say for the greater part around a year or so in a lot of climbers will really get what their coach is doing. And I always say the the success of Lattice is when we have people who have been working with us for a while, send us an email and go, I've absolutely loved this process, but you know what? You've taught me a lot and I think I can do this myself. And I'm going to go and do it. And I'm go, that's brilliant. That's so nice to see because we've supported you all the way through the period where you needed it, but now you're self-sufficient and you've become a climber who can go off for years and plan and look after their own training. And we, we love that. That's what builds good long-term self-sufficient climbers. And it's, it's, it's cool that you, you have had a similar sort of impression and experience from what you've got from from us as well yeah yeah we agreed with Raf that i can go and train uh, by myself except i hired him again because i just like to talk training <laughs> and uh, and just 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 be in touch with him such a nice guy we 
kind of gets rid of me now. <laughs> do, do you ask him about the world economy now? Uh, no, I didn't yet. Although I, I wonder what he would answer now because it's a little tricky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. Yeah. Well, um, I hope everyone has enjoyed this, who's been listening um, and you found this different format of a podcast uh valuable um thank you adam for your time recording this with me and watch out for the next part where we will be returning to look at the next two uh, parts of adam's blog where we're going to really get into the nitty-gritty of exactly what was happening in his training programs all the sessions and the details etc uh, what he ha- what happened when he went back to try his project again and then o- overall his sort of hard truths about training and what he took away from this process in the long term but otherwise thank you very much for listening and adam i will speak to you again really really soon yeah thanks for having me talk soon